Welcome to this episode of the Atlantic Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Daniel Gelzo, who is the recruiting, the regional recruiting director at Optimate. I met Daniel at a networking event and was very impressed with his knowledge of the recruiting industry, as well as his knowledge of social media marketing. He hosts the recurring What's Your Plan B networking event and is always willing to share his knowledge and genuinely cares about people. Daniel was generous with his time when I was searching for a new role, and I'm grateful that he's agreed to be a guest on the podcast. So welcome, Daniel. Glad to be here. Thanks. Uh, excited to uh, go deeper dive into my background. Who knows what we might figure out? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, you've done a, a great job with some of these networking events. Um, and just personally, you know, you definitely, you know, helped me kind of, you know, figure out my next path. And I just felt like you'd be a really great guest for the audience to kind of talk through how you wind up doing what you're doing and, and maybe some some best practices, lessons learned and, and some ideas for the younger audience. So let's maybe start with your background. Where'd you grow up? I am uh, a Midwestern. I um, was born in Grand Rapids, and um, shortly after my birth, my uh, stepfather had an opportunity. He worked within the grocery store marketing industry, and he uh, moved us out to Phoenix, Arizona to work with Safeway stores early on. And um, about two years later, we actually relocated back to North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, which is a whole new story in itself, just about that location to help do the same thing with an upstart grocery store. So most of my years all the way through high school is in um, really the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Brushy Mountains of uh, North Wilkesboro. Great area. Nice. You said Wilkesboro? Wilkesboro, right. Yeah. Famous for Lowe's Hardware. Uh, famous for chicken, uh, moonshine too, and and racing. NASCAR was built. Yeah, well. so that's how I know the city from uh, one of the races. I can't remember the, the. Is there another name for the racetrack there? Is just Wilkesboro? Uh, yeah, it's North Wilkesboro Race. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, moonshining. I'm sure there's lots of lots of local stories there. So, huh. did you um, did you work with your parents, say in high school, in terms of the grocery store or anything like that, or what was what was your involvement with their work? So actually, when we moved back, my father was, my stepfather was pretty involved with the grocery store side. But after a few years, we actually, as a family, we umped up a large um, daycare. And uh, in the 70s, it was well known. And we had three, 400 kids, a couple city blocks. And I was, uh, I had the opportunity to wake up every morning with, you know, a couple hundred friends there. But um I have always been working at some level within the family business, um, you know, even outside of that, um, taking paper routes, always doing lemonade stands, always had an entrepreneurial um, mindset. So, yeah, I've had a lot of jobs for sure. Gotcha. So in um, in high school, were you involved in sports? Uh, were there clubs you got involved in? Were some favorite subjects you had or some ones you were good at? Yeah. Well, you know, for the the audience, I, I was not a great student for sure. I, I can't say I had a, a, a best. I always liked history. Uh, those were great. Uh, math, I struggled a little bit until I actually got into college. But no, I was not real motivated in high school, believe it or not. Um, when I got out, I actually did a couple years uh, in uh, Greensboro. Um, I tried college um, and I was doing it on my own. I was paying for my own college and I, I wasn't getting anywhere. So I actually decided in 1983 to take a walkabout and I went out to Colorado for a year. And I, I think that was a big turning point for my life. I went out there. 
um, got involved with um, work and um, in the summertime, you just work in around the resorts and you have fun. But when the winter comes, you're, you're definitely working on the resorts. But I had a couple mentors back in uh, 83 that really developed my work habits and my um, just my ability to out hustle a lot of people. I, I think one of the best um, advice I got was, you know, you've got to position yourself and authority it can't be given uh, the best way to get promoted is make you the subject matter expert that everybody goes to you that it's a natural uh, award to give you promotion so i really took that to heart there um, yeah in 84 I, my real quick ahead. daniel how did you how did you go from north carolina to colorado how'd you decide where you wanted to go uh that's a great story i had a friend of mine from high school who actually uh did a bike trip with a couple other friends, rode his bike from coast to coast. And he had a, a couple of people in Colorado. There's a big biking community there. And oh, yeah. every city you've got places to go once you get into that network. And there's one host in Leadville, Colorado that said, if you guys wanted to come back out, um, we'd be glad to host you and let you get set up out here. And uh, Wesley called me and said, Hey, Daniel, you got anything going on important right now? I was actually in Greensboro and, I said, well, I've got a job and I've been dating somebody and um, why? He says, well, why don't you ride out to Colorado with me? And I hung up the phone. I told him I'd give him a couple of days. And 15 minutes later, I called him back and I said, I'm all in. I've sold my belongings and I've got the car back and I'm ready to go. So about a month later, we went out and uh, spent a year, a little over a year out there. It was an amazing trek. Uh, I always called it my walkabout time. Um, yeah which I think if you're not really focused on school, you've got to have an outlet somewhere. And that was what I did. That's great. What were, um, what were some lessons that you picked up from that, you know, walkabout year that maybe you didn't expect? Well, you know, there's, there's a big eye opening when you're the only person driving your income and that living from week to week or paycheck to paycheck is not that great. And although California and Colorado are areas where you do that quite a bit, especially if you're just working in the resorts area. But um, I, I learned really just about not being average. Um, I'll give you another story about maybe some lessons learned that the audit should take away. But really, the mentor, believe it or not, it was at a uh, one of the fastest volume pizza huts in the world. It happens to be in uh, Frisco, Colorado, and hmm. ran an amazing um, shop and it was all about business and inventory and reporting and people management. And I just really had a whole summer there of working with somebody who was really drilling into what work ethics are needed to, you know, be promoted. Um, I, I did that for a year and a half. I actually ended up coming back because no matter how hard you work, it's, it's a pretty expensive environment. And I really wanted to come back and uh, go to college. And when I came back to North Carolina, actually, my mother had passed away. And um, when I was 24 years old, and, uh, you know, that's a couple years out of high school, I haven't really gotten a, a direct career path. I'm having fun, and I'm seeing the world, but mm -hmm. didn't really have a career path. So I, I joined the military, joined the Navy in, um, in 88, really just to go back to college and finish college. And uh, six months later, I found myself in Persian Gulf and in the Persian Gulf War. And I was on an uh, FFG, a fast frigate. And one thing that I had taken out of Colorado is that 
um, I'm going to do everything 110%. And when I went into the military, that's what I did. I just, I attacked everything, voraciously attacked everything. I learned every skill. I learned everything about my job. I learned everything about everybody else's jobs. And I got promoted pretty quickly. Even as an enlisted um, petty officer, I uh, was a tactical air controller. I had ATO qualifications. I really excelled. And, and I guess when you hit the Persian Gulf and uh, general quarters goes, it's nice to have somebody that knew what they're doing. And I wasn't going to leave that to anybody else. I wanted to know what I was going to do. Um, because again, I didn't go in to go to war. I really wanted to get an education. Yeah. That, so you were in the air control. Cause I know you have to, you take tests and you kind of go into a certain specialization. Um, yeah. were you thinking, Hey, I'm pretty good at this. I might make a career out of it. And that went in. I thought the military was a great path. I mean, it's 20 years, uh, highly skilled technologies, all that are transferable, you know, mm -hmm. depending on which industry you go into. Um, tactical air control is a really unique business. I mean, there's a science behind it. And to give you more of a tactical air control, our ship was a fast attack ship. It was uh, in front of the carrier units. Our job was just to hunt submarines. And to do that as a tactical air controller, you had to be a scientist, you had to be a biologist, you had to be a project manager, you had to understand the relevance of temperature, salinity and depth and the uh, sound propagation and how every foot of depth takes. So there, my math really came in mm -hmm. when I went to school there. Um, but also it's, um, it's about having multiple um, plates up in the air as a tactical air controller you're the one that's navigating the ship, giving the ship direction, giving the helicopter direction, all for the hunting of submarines. And that's a very tactical business. The nice thing that I had is I was a really good um, video gamer growing up and mm -hmm. in high school when the 80s was around. Yep. So for me, it was just a natural match. I had the ability to multitask, project manage. I had pretty good nerves. And uh, it was a good video game. But if you're good at it, then there's a value there. And I got really good at it to the point that uh, after I finished my deployments, I had an opportunity to go to Norfolk and to be a tactical air control uh, instructor for the class that I went through. And really, Paul, that was my first foyer into teaching and coaching. And I found out that I loved it. And a lot of this all kind of drilled into kind of my special skill is I'm very organized and very structured. We'll talk about this really when you get into work and why I took my career path. And that is um, in that business, you can't fail. So you really got to be structured to make sure you're calling the, the coordinates, the altitude, the directions, because lives are dependent on it. So you really had to focus there. But a lot of it came to uh, being best, overachieving, studying, excelling, driving that so you could be there in the moment. And then when I had an opportunity to go to the school, I actually found that the program that they were uh, leading was uh, disorganized. And there was such a, a, a void for um, tactical air controllers that they actually had a pretty high washout rate. And I tried to figure out building the better mousetrap. Is it because the students just couldn't do it and we need a good washout rate because we don't need those kind of students doing tactical air control? Or was there a program issue where there was just a no-win scenario? Komiyasha Maru, Star Trek, for those who even know what that is. 
And I found out it was just restructuring the program. We increased output by 20, 30% just by restructuring that. And that was kind of my curriculum design and development training and um, teaching that I learned and got a passion for in the military that moved into my next career. Um, I did get out in 96 and uh, it was because my wife and I were about to have our second child. So to your point earlier, did I want to be a career person? Yes, going in. But um, for me, there was a dynamic shift in my want, especially after my wife was pregnant for our second child. And I really wanted to be home. Um, my first five, six years, I was gone 50% of the time. Um, yeah. so it, it was a challenge, especially if you're on the surface warfare and you're traveling six, seven months out of the year and you're gone a lot. So I actually opted to get out. Um, I got out in 96. My wife was not real happy. And uh, this might parlay into your next question. How did I get into the industry? So I'm in Pensacola, Florida. I spent nine years in the Navy. I excelled there. I was good at managing people, running projects, running programs, curriculum development. And I happened to answer and read an ad back in those days. We actually looked at the advertisement on the weekends and we actually had to send our resumes in by fax. Um, but there was an opportunity for a personnel manager and it was really helping people find a job. And I felt if I could motivate people in the military to excel in that environment, then I ought to be able to recruit and find people in um, the civilian community. The problem with that is when I sent my resume, and this kind of addresses with our audience about your initial approach and looking for a job, I sent a resume, but it wasn't tailored. It was really designed and geared around military and acronyms and the work that I did didn't translate into the recruiting or staffing industry. Yeah. So I didn't get any responses. I didn't get any calls. I didn't, uh, I even called in and, um, Finally, after about a week, and this was January 7th, so I got out right before the holidays, I ended up calling the branch office that I knew my resume was going to, and I ended up bribing the receptionist to tell me where they were at, and I promised <laughs> her I'd bring her a deli sandwich, and she bit, and she agreed, and she gave me the address, and I brought her a deli sandwich, and I brought my resume back to the branch manager, and I said... I understand why you probably haven't called me, but I think in about another hour and 20 minutes, you're going to regret not meeting with me. And he said, why? And I said, because I've got an interview with another competitor of yours. I researched the industry. This is where I really want to plug in. And he said, okay, let's sit down and meet. And we met for an hour and the next day as a VP hired me. So that was almost 24 years ago that I've been in recruiting and it's all because I bribed my way into it. Well, and I think, you know, it, it, I know you're, you're making light of it, but I think that tenacity and that grit and finding a creative way to get in, as well as the networking piece, which I know you'll talk about. I mean, it's, it's not just applying, right? It's actually meeting somebody, making that connection and making an impression that really gets you that through that door into, okay, now I'm in, okay, now I can kind of sell myself and what that really looks like. So that's a great example of doing that. Agree. And um, for me, I've never liked failure. I've always competed. And I, I like being number one. Even if I was number two or number three, I was okay if I knew that I had competed, I, comp I prepared for it, and I gave it all I could. Mm -hmm. I was satisfied with that. But I think um, the audience will always hear that failure is a great teacher. And I agree, but you can't be a student of failure either. You can't, you can't yeah. take 
lessons learned from that and adapt and grow and become better, even though you won't succeed, you should still stretch yourself for that. And I think the, um, the job search industry and the career industry really struggles in people's ability to differentiate, to brand, to know what they're doing and to what I think is the most critical part when you talk about that is just understanding how return on investment for those who may be buying your skill sets is real important, but most people don't know how to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, certainly, you know, I think most people don't like to, to lose or to fail. Um, And I think for some that don't take that opportunity to really self-assess, okay, why did I fail? Was it lack of preparation? You know, was it, um, I didn't realize that maybe the rules were different or I didn't put the time in, you know, and I think some, some people really have a hard time doing that self-assessment really learning, you know, what it is. And maybe it's, maybe it's, it's not my strength. You know, what I tried to get into was really not what um, I was necessarily good at or passionate about. Um, It just kind of floated along. So, yeah, I think having those answering some of those hard questions, I think is really important to learning from your failures and to get better. Agree. Yeah. So early on in the staffing industry, it's hard, um, especially in, you know, the early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of technology, there wasn't applicant tracking tools, there wasn't um, social media or LinkedIn to really help you. A lot of that was just building branding and hustling. And um, I worked for a great company that um, if you raised your hand, and you're willing to step out there on that ledge, they were willing to give you that. And one of the things that I learned, especially early on in my recruiting, was that failure as I started documenting it. I started realizing the factors that were causing some of the failure and in, in our business. And this is what's real important for the audience is that as a coach, I have an obligation to make sure that the candidate is moving forward in a career path that they're going to be successful, as well as the client. They've got to be comfortable and um offering an opportunity for a candidate that's going to help their company excel as well. So for me, the staffing industry had been really commoditized or transactional and just really shuffling resumes and not helping bridge that piece. So for me, as somebody who is the ultimate project manager and the problem solver and the better mousetrap builder, I had an opportunity really to help find where people were falling through the cracks in this process and the failure ratios of this. And our industry, I believe, is one of the hardest industries to be in because there's a lot of failure, there's a lot of rejection, and it's hard to differentiate. But if you can do that, then it's a great path. But that lesson is the same lesson whether you're in accounting or finance or engineering or healthcare. It's just about finding that ability to differentiate, excel, and build uh, a lot of successes behind that. Yeah. So, I mean, early on, so you're talking about you started late 90s, early 2000s, you mentioned that technology wasn't really where it is today, obviously. Um, What were some patterns of success that you found that um, are still are still relevant today? Yeah, Uh, well, because I do want to get into like the, you know, the LinkedIn and some of the social media aspects in just a little bit. But I'm curious to see like what, what building blocks were there back then that, that still resonate? So I think there's some personal attributes that will help with that. There's obviously new technology attributes with that. Um, You know, for somebody for this industry, I think you need to have that um, project manager background. I think you need to have the analytics background, but also there's a sales attribute too that you have to have, right? Helping people make the yes when it's an obvious yes 
not being too much of a car salesman and pushing them in, but you have to leverage all those. So realizing that early on is part of that. The other part of that too, is just understanding the psychology behind career search and hiring people. There's a lot of fear in making a bad hire. There's a lot of fear in making a bad employment decision. And once you start understanding that for me and figuring out how to help people make the right yes or the right no, both on the client side or the candidate side, then that process got really fun because even though I wasn't closing opportunities, even though there wasn't a money reward out of that, I still built um, a reputation for helping people make the right decision. And that um, really helped with the referrals and being referable, which is something I think everybody needs to deal with, right? From an integrity standpoint and help paying forward, which is why I still do that today. Um, I, I think, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to agree with you. I think that's, that's actually more deep than I, you know, at a cursory level, because I've not been in the recruiting business, but I've certainly been on, you know, as a, as a client, you know, what goes into it. And I think that's really, that's really interesting that you have, you know, outlined, not only you've got to be, you know, tactical and measuring from PM perspective, but also running through some analytics and figuring out like, you know, what probabilities are there and and then the psychology behind it. Cause I know as a hiring manager, you know, I, I think the bar and tip, I guess, historically, the bar has been pretty low. Like, okay, I've got to find a staffing person uh, to help me, you know, fill this need quickly. So it's a stopgap. It's not going to be ideal, but hopefully, you know, maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised if Daniel comes up with, with somebody. And I think early on, I think you can really differentiate yourself. Um, but I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot more tools now that I want to kind of hear from you, but um how do you differentiate, you know, your services from somebody else? Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. there's a lot that goes into it. Well, and I think to your point, I don't want this to be a sales um, moment for my organization. I, first of all, I love the industry. I'm, I'm overly um, rewarded and humbled that I get to work in industry that I can't wait to get up every morning. And I think that's an important part of it, which we can talk about that for people who are really looking at what's important for a job. Mm -hmm. Uh, But two, if I'm employment Shangri-La, I think there's a responsibility for me to help my clients and candidates to do the same. So really that methodology for me was what really differentiated myself. Um, And, you know, if we take, when I got in the military, out of the military in 96, 10 years later, I've honed that and I've gotten great at it. And I started building a reputation and with reputation. And if you're working with a company that rewards success and you raise your hand, I got a lot of promotions. I I jumped out of the industry in 96 and within three years, four years, I had an opportunity to move to Atlanta to take over a branch in the division. And um, that was a big step. But again, failure is a great teacher. If you're willing to get there, Um, I was with an organization that was ready to help you fail, but learn and move forward as long as you are afraid to jump back on the diving board. Yeah. And I, I worked with a couple firms building out the methodology. In 2007, I got an opportunity to go join a billion-dollar company to teach that process. So my world shifted a little bit in 2007. I was an individual contributor and producer and executive recruiter, and I had trained and I'd learned and I had taken bits and parts from all the mentors before me. And I built a process that um, was successful. 
and it had a high success rate and somebody wanted to buy it. And in 2007, I joined Spherion as the director of talent development to teach that holistically with their sales and recruiting people. And that was amazing. But you know what happened in 2008, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we go into the recession. Um, but we still grew because our, our model was not that commodity model. It was how do we drive value? How do we earn the right to still represent the best that's out there? People still need talent. They still need um, technical advancements in IT, the industry that I was in, people still grew the fastest way. The challenge with them is they could make a great platform. They just couldn't recruit well. So there was always that need there. And as long as you could fill that need and, and coach people to do that, then you can compete. And actually we competed very well. 2008, 2012, our professional services groups grew just because another nugget for the crew and for you is that if you can specialize, if you can stop being a generalist and you become a subject matter expert within a vertical and you can help guide much like anybody else does that becomes a subject matter expert or virtuoso in whatever, then there's a value for that. And we really took it to heart. Um, we started carving out our industries by marketing and sales and engineering and IT and general staffing, but we wanted our associates to be excellent at that. So we gave them the tools and we showed them how to be that great project manager and help people not fail in this process. And it continued to grow to the point in, I think, 2012, Ronstad, which at that point was a $23 billion company, acquired really Spherion for the professional services side. Was there, um, was there a fair amount of consolidation that was going on based on some of the specialization you were talking about? Actually, we're, we're pretty bold. I know there's a lot of consolidations, but for us, we felt more we could um, segment and build out our divisions by specialty, the better off we would be. Obviously, there's shared synergies with enterprise resources and tools and technologies, but at the field level, um, and you're a technology uh, executive, uh, when you have a need, you don't want to talk to a, a staffing generalist that specializes in clerical or HR, right? You want somebody who knows your industry that has subject matter expert, at least can give you an idea of why you want to buy or not. Mm -hmm. For us, that was really the catalyst. Unfortunately, it um, kind of took away our, our sandbox. Um, Ronstad is a large global provider and um, that slow relationship business was really not a good match for them. Um, the, the people that I had really done a lot of work with, actually the founders of Optimi, um, they chose to step out and uh, sit in the wilderness for a year uh, and they're non-compete. And there was a part of me that said, man, I wish they would just start a company. And I actually had uh, an opportunity to join a company in Fort Lauderdale to do the same thing, training, development, director, build out, scale, grow. And uh, I actually called one of the founders and asked about that. And he said, well, before you do that, I need to send you something. And about 10 minutes later, it was a non-disclosure agreement of these two guys putting um, a, a company together, didn't even have a name. And I knew once I read that email that I wanted to be with them again. And I've actually been with them for nine years. So 13 years total, but Optimus, uh in that same growth mode with the same mission, with the same 
paradigm shift of making sure that you earn every placement, both from the candidate and um, client side. Yeah. How does, um, I guess with, with the changing technologies that happen, how does a company stay in front of some of those trends? Is it just staying close with your, your customers? Is it kind of looking at industry experts and trying to figure out 12 months from now, there's going to be a huge push here and we're going to need to have, you know, a, a group that can help place people or start looking at um, skills and candidates in this area. How's that work? Yep. So I think there's two paradigm shifts there, right? Internally, how do we as a recruiting firm stay on technology? And technology has impacted everything. You know, IT in the older days used to be a subsegment of finance. Well, now it's its own division. And oftentimes finance is reporting up into IT. But, you know, the IT arena and the technology has impacted our ability. You know, um, you take 15 years ago when the Internet wasn't around like we know it today. And then now we have uh, augmented reality and uh, advanced analytics and artificial intelligence all tying back into tools and job boards and um, sites like LinkedIn that are driving those analytics. Um, Regardless of all the analytics that go behind there, there's still that core business of um, making sure you have the right talent, you understand the passion behind that talent, and it maps correctly into what the company is trying to do, not just technically, but culturally as well. And Mm. I don't think technology is ever going to take that interface away. I, I do think for 10 years, technology is trying to take out the human element of the job search. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that. I understand it. But I think at the root level, there still needs to be that from a company standpoint, I'm here to really understand what you're trying to do in your career path. Here's what we need. Here's current state. And can you help us with that? That dialogue doesn't go on a lot in the interview process, which is a lot what we do. We coach our companies to ask the right questions, to open up the vest and tell them what's broken and tell them what's good, but to also have a good understanding if they're the right person, both culturally and and, uh, technically that can help them get to where they want to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important because um, it, even with all of the advances in technology, it's almost, it's almost grown astronomically in terms of, oh, it's, I can just click three buttons here on LinkedIn and apply for a job instead of having to take the time to, you know, type a cover letter up, print it out, mail it. So um, those, those filtering techniques are, you know, certainly helpful, but it may also mask you not seeing a great candidate that would be a fit otherwise. So you got to balance some of that out, don't you? I agree. You know, so that was one paradigm. The other paradigm, which happens very exponentially, light speed, um, is how fast technology is changing our world today. If we go 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we consumed small parts of data. We consume more data per day than we did the last 100 years. So that type of knowledge and consumption of knowledge drives everything that we do. So yes, every six months, the IT landscape is entirely different for network engineers, for security engineers, or software engineers, or IT executives. And they, just like anybody else, has to be on that perpetual educational course reading, understanding, being involved with your network community, spending time outside of the job, becoming and being the subject matter expert. If you don't, um, you will get irrelevant. Um, We see it in Atlanta all the time. Every time there's a major technology shift or an economic downturn, there's people who get left behind 
just because they weren't staying on top of technology. They weren't refining their skills. They weren't finding a new wheelhouse to be in. Um, yeah. Happen all the time. So both on the job search side, just because you get a job doesn't mean you stop. It means you get competitive, which you tell me green light because I want to tell a little story that I think will set up the mindset for anybody going into a career path right now or anybody competing for work and position. Yeah, promotion. yeah go for it. So it's, it's 99 and I'm in Pensacola, Florida. <clears throat> I'm working for the company, the staffing company, and we're always interviewing for salespeople. Our industry still hasn't figured out that genetic makeup or the DNA makeup that guarantees us a placement and a successful salesperson. But some of the questions I always asked when I was talking to salespeople are, you know, tell me what you like about sales. And um, I know there's a lot of right answers to that. Um, but what I was looking for is somebody who said, look, I love the challenge. I like finding the issue. I like creating a solution and a creative solution for that because that's what sells to the client. I like overcoming objections, but at the end of the day, I just like making a lot of money. Now that last comment, I, I, that's probably a, a director sales dream is that you hear that, but all that piece can't come together without the work and the hustle and the project management that comes behind that. So I thought she did a great answer for me personally. There might be some other selections other people would choose. And then my next question I asked is what do you need from a company to help you achieve that? Which is an important question for the audience to think about mm -hmm. this candidate was probably 12 months out of college. She had done a little B2B sales in the telco industry. And she said, Daniel, um, there's three types of companies. The first companies, we'll just call them worker companies. And they do their job. They go to work. They work the nine to five. They, they do their processing and then they go home. And I'm not really excited about being with that organization. Now, the second organization, we'll call them the competing companies. And they got a strategic plan to compete. They go out, they hustle, they have some differentiators. But Daniel, what I'm really looking for, what I'm yearning for is the company that competes and dominate and has a strategic plan to dominate whatever vertical or specialty they have. And that was a paradigm shift for me, even after 10, 11 years in the industry, is that somebody with 12 months, that her passion was that she could find a company that just didn't work, that just didn't compete, but dominated. Um, you think about our major dominators in the field right now in a lot of different verticals and they eat people's lunch every day mm -hmm. because they had a strategic plan, not just to compete, just not to be okay, but to differentiate every day and scale. So from there, I, I've really driven that. I always called it the rule of thirds, either you're working, you're competing or you're dominating. And I think if you go into corporate environments if you've been there for a while, you could probably point out the workers and the competitors and the people who dominate. You know, sadly, every time um, economic downturns come around, corporate leadership has to evaluate our work environments the same way. Who are the people just showing up? Because we've got to cut a third or a fourth, and those people are pretty easy to find. It's the competitors, the middle people that come to work, they do a great job, they're loyal, they do their job, maybe they just don't articulate or show value or drive value or uh, help leadership see that. But you can bet the top third do it well every day. I mean, if we just take the sales industry, for example, that industry is stack ranked every week by top thirds, middle thirds, and bottom thirds. So as the people listening, even if you're in a non-sales role, 
you should go to work every day asking yourself, am I a worker? Am I competing? Am I hustling? Am I, uh, or am I um, dominating in this? Because if you're dominating, you're going to get opportunities for growth. You're going to get opportunities for advancement. You're going to get opportunities to go do those things that you're looking for. Yeah. That's a really great story. I know, um, you know, at, at a company level, I know that was a big proponent of GE back in the day. And you mentioned this is a 99 where, you know, if they weren't number one or number two in an industry, they'd look to get out, sell it off. They didn't want to be just average. They wanted to, you know, to your point to dominate. Um, I'm in Amazon now. And one of our mindsets is what we call day one. And it's a, every day you show up, pretend it's day one and you are trying to get, you know, your feet under you and really hustling and really trying to find that edge and that angle. And you never want to get to day two where you're a little more comfortable or complacent, or you feel like you've kind of got things settled now, you know, that, that urgency and that edge is what drives innovation and really keeps this company really competitive, even at the size that it's become. So it's, yep. it's a, it's a great mindset and, and great story to reinforce that for you. Yep. I actually gave you a virtual high five on my end when I saw that update on LinkedIn. I'm like, yeah, that's a competitor. That's somebody who's out dominating their market. He's going to do well there. Yeah, it's I, I, it's um, it's really been a blessing for me. I've really um, I just appreciate the culture and the opportunity um, what's been given to me, especially in 2020. So, but I think you know you gave me a lot of things to think about when I was looking for a job, and and it was more you know insight because I, you know, when you do uh, find yourself out of a job, you know what you're you seem to. I, I guess the mindset is I'll take anything, you know, that I, I just need a paycheck, you know, and some people have afforded luxury and I had a pretty decent severance package. So I was not completely urgent, but I think there's probably not enough people that really think about interviewing a company and understanding their own strengths and skill sets and what they're willing to work in from a culture perspective. I think that's really important as you go through a job search and for you to find that in your candidates um, is really, really um I think probably a key to success, right? Well, for us, and we taught this early on and we believed it and we were passionate about it, that 80% of success for us was on the cultural compatibility. The 20%, the skill set was the easiest piece for us because that's almost quantifiable. Can you code? What level can you code? It was really the cultural fit and the passion. I, I go back to that every day. I, I am lucky that I get to get up every morning and can't wait to go do the job that I do. I'm passionate about it. Are there days that it just kicks me down? Yes, but that's our work. But um, if I'm lucky enough to do that and I'm lucky enough to know that I'm going to retire in the industry doing this, I'm probably going to be putting deals as I pass away. And hopefully that's a good <laughs> ending. Um, but what I'm real lucky about is I'm with a company that I know this is where I'm going to finish out my career. I'm going to retire. With this yeah. That's the forever home that I think people fight for, although our economy doesn't really drive that. But the same passion should be behind everybody else. Even if you can't commit to a company, you should commit to a process or a technology or a service or an industry that you're just passionate about. Um, you know, in our network events, and you've seen us talk about this at Plan B, the job search is tough. If you don't have a lot of self-reflection and understand what you do that's valuable, and that's one because we can all be great at something, but not be passionate at it. And we're just going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But if you can find something you're good at and you're passionate about it, then that's the secret. That's the secret sauce. Um, you've got to understand that what you're good at has to have an ROI and people want to buy it. You know, I, 
I would love to be an oceanographer or fish for a living, but I know I can't get people to pay me for that. But that would be my passion if money right. was a subject. But if we're in the real world and we've got to pay the bills and pay the mortgage, then what do you do that you love doing that you're great at that somebody might want to pay for? And once you understand that, then the second phase is understanding how to translate that into a brand, a marketing brand, a resume, your LinkedIn. Can you articulate it? Can you talk about it? Can you drive uh, real stories around uh, real challenges that you're able to overcome and how that impacted the company from an automation or revenue and that you can do it again? Is it repeatable? Uh, that's the second phase. And the third phase is really talking about that in the interview where somebody believes you and gets beyond the skepticism of making the bad hire because they're doing a lot of bad dating and they're failing a lot because they're not taking time to understand the elements of the placement. But if you can sell them, they're willing to get that. And that company allows you to drive your dream and grow and excel, even if it's for five years, then that's, that's a great path. That's what the job search should be. I yeah. just think from a society standpoint, from technology standpoint, from enterprise environment, we've really watered down that process. If I could do one thing and my applicant tracking buddies out there, if I could get rid of that process, that would be great. If we could really bring it back to basics where everybody interviewed and everybody had the opportunity to be passionate about that without going through, um, you know, keyword search and a filtering that really didn't get you anywhere. That would be the perfect world. But I, I don't think we're ever going to get there. I think we've got to find a common ground to use both elements of that for the perfect world. And I think we've done that at Optimi. I think that's why companies want to work with us. I think that's why we've been good at not working with every company because they couldn't get to that world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you do go that extra mile, I think, to really understand, you know, from the culture and from the, the psychology dynamics of the individual and the company, how to match those up and understand it for, um, and I think the steps that you talked about, you know, finding your value and your ROI, you know, build that into your brand and then interview. Well, how do you, what advice would you give in terms of, what it means to interview well. I, I know for me personally, I know it works for me um, and it served me well, but for somebody just coming out of college and is starting to look at jobs or, or somebody that's in their first job, but they're ready to maybe make a move or, or try something different, what advice would you give them? Well, I, I would say, and I know this sounds a little cliche, but uh, definitely do a ton of research on the company, not just what you... Uh, disseminate from the job description, look at their website, look at their glass doors, look at what other companies are saying about them, look about their industry, see what uh, dynamic changes are happening there. Find somebody inside the company that would will be willing to have a 10 minute conversation with you about what's life inside. You know, all those are hard processes to do, but if you're, if this is the dream job, then spare no effort in finding that information because the most important thing before you sit in front of that executive or that decision maker, you've got to understand what the current state is. Um, you've got to understand what they perceive they want the future state to be. And can you be the catalyst to help them for that change? I always talk about this as short-term, long-term objectives. Somebody coming right out of college says, um, learned a lot of tactical, fundamental uh, skill sets through college, but now it's time for practical application. You know, mm -hmm. uh, what did you do while you're in school through, you know, um, college programs and before school or summer school? How did you, uh, when you're working, you know, what lessons did you learn that may be applied here? And then sell that, um, even if you haven't owned that specific skill set, because it's a new job coming out of school. 
Uh, maybe it's the accounting and you haven't really worked in public accounting, but you've got the fundamentals of that. Now you have to go into practical application. But what you did as a drive-through clerk and the best drive-through clerk at, uh, at uh, Chick-fil-A and their philosophy and their leadership counts, mm-hmm. right? Uh, people yeah. are hiring people with the perceived uh, uh, perception that they're going to continue to excel. So if you've got opportunities where you've excelled before, make sure you've got the story behind that. Here's what I did when I was here. Here's the challenges that we had in running that. Here's what we did to fix it. And this is how it impacted. I think that's applicable here, don't you? Leadership says yes. Um, whether you're in mid-level work and you've got five, six years in the industry, again, what have you been doing the last five years in helping to solve problems, automation, cost, uh, customer service, satisfaction, those things all have to apply. That's where I think that middle to lower third group, the middle group, there's rock stars in there. I just don't think they've learned how to articulate it or leverage that sales gene to build out those ROI comments all the time. The bottom third, if you're just showing up to work, and we know we have those, those people have a really hard time when the economic downturns, sitting in front of a client, a prospect employer, and selling something other than I showed up for the last four years and I was okay. Yeah. Or longer, right? I've seen some people that are 20 plus years with a company and they're they're not doing what they need to, to remain current. And, and, you know, I know there's some, especially in this day and age, there's a perception if you've been with a company for 25 years, you're really going to struggle changing jobs or coming to someplace new, you sort of stuck in your rut or whatever. But I think you can also do things outside of your job to be relevant, to be current, to show that you've got some aptitude to do new things, try different things. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's where I've seen some folks that have struggled where they've gotten laid off and they're just, they don't know what to do next. Yeah. Look, there's a lot of free courses out there on uh, Udemy and um, um, all kinds of sites for training and development certifications. Right now is the time to hone in. Um, yeah. you know, technology arena certifications change all the time. We talk about that in our world a lot, but staying relevant, interviewing, staying involved with technical network associations, ATP, Atlanta Technology Professionals, um, TAG, those are the industry knowns uh, for my industry here in Atlanta. And if you're not shaking hands and listening and um, hearing the conferences and finding out what's going on, then you're not going to do well. You are going to find yourself with a gap when it comes time for somebody to make a hard decision. Yeah. And I know it's, it's a little bit tougher in this day and age too, where everybody's remote or most people are. Um, any suggestions for how to leverage social media or how to leverage some of our online tools when, when you can't necessarily get to an event or the events have all become virtual, how to sort of make an impact or, or make it valuable for you? Yep. Well, I want to approach that two ways. You know, as somebody coming into the industry, set your, um, your structure now to be involved with networking events, with industry events that are relevant to your career path or your industry, but also don't forget to participate in nonprofit philanthropy, those events help grow, connect, build the relationships. You know, um, Paul, could you imagine how powerful we'd be, our network would be if we kept up with everybody since high school and all the jobs that we've had and all the people that have interacted and helped with our career paths, whose open doors or closed doors for us, if we just kept those relationships. You know, social media allows us to do that now, um, far much greater than it was 15, 20 years ago in a job search. A, A couple of things. If 
you're good at what you do and you can build a brand about that, you obviously have a competitive chance. You've got to be able to make sure that the resume or the brand that you're using to start the interview process is indicative of that. Uh, you've heard me say this before, for every apply now button, there's probably a thousand resumes. That filter is pretty good on the front end from a corporate standpoint. Mm -hmm. That generalist or that HR professional is filtering a lot of resumes, 95% of them. So that still leaves 50 resumes coming into an email box of an executive who can't interview 50 people because they're already working 50 hours a week. Right. So if their math is I can only interview five, the realization of is my brand written a way that drives ROI, that helps me compete, that earns me one of those five spots. That's an important piece there, right? Um, just as much as that resume, your LinkedIn profile has to be that way too. There's a lot of people who are just participants in, res in LinkedIn but they've not really adopted it or owned it. They're just there. Um, so if I land on your resume as an executive, I make the same decision, not a top five. So I'm going to filter through and that's a delete button. Mm -hmm. The other five, I'm going to schedule for interviews for discovery. The same thing for your LinkedIn and social media. When somebody lands there, does it show a story of career progression and specialization and ROI that may benefit me as an executive that's one option. Or more importantly, I like Paul and I know his company's doing well and he's been looking for somebody. I don't have a need for this person. So I'm going to send them to Paul. That's the referral. Or the third option is I just don't see any value. So I'm going to not engage that person. Right. What I love about social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, WhatsApp, you name it. It's allowed us to collect and engage with a lot of people. We just got to figure out how to really manage that process to drive the ROI. Um, I'm going to plug what's your plan B um, for a second. Please do, because I think that's a really fantastic uh, event that you do. And I think there's a lot that people can glean out of it. So promote away. That network group started eight, nine years ago because I kept hearing executives say, I just didn't see it coming. I, I didn't know I needed plan B. And now that I'm in the middle because of an acquisition or an economic downturn or the company was sold or moved out of the States, I didn't have my network. So I always felt that you've got to be able to build the brand, especially for people coming into the career path now, build the brand, keep the relations and the network warm. As a new person coming into uh, the work industry, you should already have two or three options all the time. Keep those warm. Uh, if something happens, if your company is... Uh, acquired, then at least you've got that network up and running and it's a lot easier to network. Um, I love it. Uh, you know, I love my job, but I've got a lot of people that call me and go, Daniel, have you ever thought about doing this? Or have you ever thought about joining us over here? And the answer would be, thank you, but I love my job, but here's somebody else. Mm -hmm. But when I do have it, if, if our company sells, if that's ever an option or the world changes and nobody needs staffing or recruiting anymore, which, you know, paradigm shifts happen, blockbuster. Um, I want to yeah. have a plan B. And I felt that I have three or four options all the time. I think that's why I uh, started um, um, not BHT, but what's your plan B is to help people, help executive build collaborative relationships, build the social media, stay relevant um, just from a collaboration standpoint. That's great. Do you, I mean, LinkedIn is kind of like the, the, the big powerhouse in, in recruiting and, and professional business networks as well. Are there, are you seeing other sites 
that have become a close second um, or is it sort of all kind of lumped in together and some people, depending on maybe the industry, if you're more in a creative environment, you know, if you're looking for jobs, a photographer and Instagram is probably a really big deal, but have, do you distinguish between them at all? Or is LinkedIn still really the, the primary avenue? For me, and I'm sure there's others out there that will say that here's some other contenders out there. I think um, LinkedIn 10 years ago took a strategic plan on becoming the premier career promotion networking site. So that's their vertical and they've created tools and analytics that help people with that. I think there's a lot of specialty segment sites behind that, uh, whether it's marketing or advertising or accounting finance or engineering or scuba diving, you name it. I think there's some subsections of those that are out there. You obviously want to try that. I'm not advocating that you only use LinkedIn. I think networking is a collaborative uh, tools, right? You want to have a lot of tools in your tube bags. You just got to decide how much time to spend in it. What is my brand and what ROI do I plan on getting out of it? Most important thing about that ROI proposition is how much are you putting into it? Um, how much is that community enjoying um, the content and the value that you put into it? Which I think a lot of people on LinkedIn, they get there they load it up and they hope people find it, but they're not really doing a great job on the search optimization side of it, right? Mm -hmm. They're not engaging it enough where people will land on their page, which is what we talk a lot about, which is kind of that phase two. Now that I've got my brand, now that I've got LinkedIn up, how do I get people to find me? And that's become by becoming a contributor, by being a subject matter expert, by having value that the community enjoys and wants to share or spread just like any social media platform. Yeah. And I think that's, that is, again, I know I struggle with that in terms of just providing content, you know, creating posts out there and making it relevant, tagging things the right way. I know there's other sites like medium that are big blogging posts or blogging sites where you can specialize in I'm a project management expert, or here's how I've done, you know, product design or UX or whatever it is. But, um, yeah, I think that's where people sort of fail. They post up, you know, pretty blandly. Here's what I did from this year to this year. Here was what my title was. And then they may not even put any descriptors in there. And, you know, even with a resume, you know, you want, you want key metrics. You know, I improved by this amount from this time to this time, or I generated this amount of value for this customer or my company or did anything to kind of showcase what your achievements were. And back to you were saying just around, you know, what was the, the ROI that I generated for whatever I was involved in. So um, I think there's, there's certainly a lot more that you can do about that, but I think you go through some of that in some of your, your events that you hosted. We do. And I've got a video series that I put out in um, May on the three phases of strategic search. It's, it's in my LinkedIn profile. If anybody just goes to my activity section, they can see the post, but it broke down each of those phases. You know, how do I evaluate myself? How do I understand ROI? What am I happy with? What verticals are going to want to buy that? And then uh, phase two of that is understanding how your resume is built from an achievement standpoint, really tailored specifically, not a cast net, but a dart gun. And then the third is when I do get the opportunities and sit in front of executive, and it might be my only chance, how do I describe ROI that's relevant for them. You know, you and I have been around, so we've had a lot of success stories, but what what five or six relevant success stories are going to resonate for that particular leadership? That's why I'm saying 
before you go to the interview, if you don't understand, if you don't have an informed understanding of short-term, long-term objectives, current state, future state, you're just kind of going in there and throwing spaghetti. Um, yeah. Some of it might stick. Um, they may like you and culturally you might be a good fit, but the beginning of the interview is really about, can they help us move forward as an organization? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times you'll wind up in a, um, a phone screen. So you may not even get to be talking to the hiring manager. I mean, if you, if your resume makes it on a, on a recruiter's desk and they're like, okay, this person's, you know, certainly looks like they're good on paper. And then that phone screen in 30 minutes, you're not able to present those pieces that you just described. You may not even get to the hiring manager, even if you did all the other things, you know, right. Well, even the buying motivation of an HR generalist is different than a lineman. True. Their needs a lot different from a candidate and what they want from an ROI. And then executive or C-suite, their need is a little bit different. But understanding that need, what they're trying to do as a checkbox, which is skill set, compatibility, are you interest? Those are the three main ones. But getting them to define what do you need? I love it when a manager or an executive says, Daniel, here's where we're at here's current state, here's our biggest challenges. What have you done in the past that can help that for us? Mm -hmm. That's the best line for any executive to ask in any interview, because it really clears out all the fluff. It really gets down to, here's what we need you to be a rock star and a subject matter expert. Have you done it? Can you do it again? Can you replicate it? And can you help us? If yeah. not, then um, I would love to hang out with you and have beers, but uh, I really got to keep interviewing until I get that. Yeah. No, that's great advice. I can put all these links in the podcast for folks to find you and your video series and uh, the plan B and all that. So I'll definitely embed those in. I know we sort of went from your journey to, Hey, you know, what are you, what are companies looking for? But um, what, what do you like best about your job? Um, I mean, there's a lot. I, I, I <laughs> you remember I, I told you I was in love with this job. So, uh, but I think the, biggest impact is I have the opportunity and honor to hear a lot of great stories, how people have really pushed themselves and struggled and overcome and persevered, even from a candidate standpoint, but just the amazing stories of individuals who had a great idea, who built it out of their, um, their garage, who are now multi-million dollar, billion dollar companies to hear those stories and how people persevere. I get to see that, right? I have a unique opportunity to be part of that journey to help them continue that success. Um, I, I'm going to quote Jerry Maguire, but I, I thought that was a great movie if you hadn't yeah. had a chance to see that. But this manifesto was challenging a norm, right? Uh, and it was an industry, much like ours has been, has been commoditized and transactional. He wrote an opportunity to let's put the talent first. And we've done that. So I love that I get to do that for my organization. I love that I get to do that for a company that's bought in, invested, and it's successful. I think all that, financially, it's rewarding. Emotionally, it's rewarding. It's frustrating. But it is the ultimate uh, maze, right? Never, although we're working with project managers, the dynamics and the nuances are so different for each project. So for me, not every day is the same. Not every project is the same. Not every widget company is the same. And if you can figure that out and help them figure that piece, then that's amazing. The, mm -hmm. uh, the wins are pretty amazing. And I, I will say, 
that there's a lot of losses. This business will beat you up. But if you stay true to, I've done everything to physically help this group come together and it didn't happen, then you can sleep at night. Um, I think a lot of people go to work and they can't control that. They, they do fire drills all day and they're just frustrated. So for those who are not out there in employment Shangri-La, there's hope. Uh, just go through those three phases and find your best spot. You know, yeah. pandemics, economic downturns, 9-11, those are all disastrous events in our lives, but they're also milestones for opportunities for us to be creative, to come out the other side, to find ways to reinvent the wheel and drive value and be happy with it. Um, I had one person tell me a long time ago uh, that she was fired and uh, she really loved her job and she was great at it. But um, in the moment, she didn't really like that manager. She was resentful. Um, but a year later, after she was forced to zig, she found her passion and she, she, um, she uh, coined a phrase called the unwanted mentor. And I've used that a lot. I do that a lot in teaching is that, it's okay if we run into unwanted mentors. It's uh, what we do after it, which makes us really special. That's a great, that's a great phrase, actually. Because um, I've had a few of those over the course of my career. And, you know, it's in hindsight, you, you look and you some, sometimes you'll learn a lesson about maybe what not to do. But in the moment, you're like, there's nothing positive that I can even see out of this. But that, I like that term, unwanted mentor. Yeah. I know there's a good portion of our listeners, even our society that are not, uh, that are risk averse, right? There's people who just like a comfortable path and like going to work. I, I think that's okay. I still think that uh, life is a gift and that you should love what you do and should be passionate about. It. And if you can do that, it really is the miracle part of living. Mm -hmm. Go to work, which, you know, one of the things you said on our checklist is work-life balance. And I, I don't like that term. I don't. Because yeah. I think people who struggle with work life hadn't found employment shangri lock. For me, I work, I work 10, 15 hours a day because I love it, because I'm in the weeds, because I like it. You know, artists are the same way, but they're passionate about that. So I think if you're really struggling with that whole work life question, maybe you need to evaluate where you're plugged in. And yeah. if you are plugged in and you love it, then I think you do want to stay in the fight. And I think the people around you love that and will adjust. Um, I work a lot. I give back a lot. I have a lot of uh, you know, professional organizations and philanthropy that I'm part of, um, but I still love what I do and my family accepts it. Yeah, that's great. What, what advice would you give to somebody that wants to get into your industry that's just starting out? Um, it's a great industry. It's one of the best industries and I am jaded. I love it. So I'm probably not a great person to ask, but I would say um, you've got to have some self-reflection. If you're a great project manager, if you if there's a sales driver, if there's an analytics component behind you, if you like solving problems, building better mousetraps, then that would be a good industry for you. Um, the best advice I would say is don't come in to work or compete. If you're going to be in this business, have a strategic plan to dominate, specialize, earn the right to represent those who need your help. And if you can be the person who can help guide that help, then it's a very rewarding job. And there's a lot of value and there's a lot of demand for that. Um, my wife loves the financial aspects of it. I will tell you that she's out shopping right now for Christmas. Yeah. I love the challenge behind it. I really am honored to be able to help people with this journey and see 
how those relationships starts. Um, I can, I've got hundreds of thousands of people um, that I can tell you about who were kind of lost in their career path, just paying the bills, but really needed a passion, but wanted a chance to get in and we were able to help them. Now they're following their dreams. Now they're doing great. Um, yeah. A lot of stories of people who have, we've been able to impact. Um, that's the biggest gift for us. That's great. That's really awesome. What, uh, what advice would you give to a younger you? Um, well, first of all, I say my younger me would not have listened. Remember, I told you I was a rebel. <laughs> um, my, my younger me would say, yes, thank you for the advice, but I'm still going to go climb that mountain without any gear. Yeah. Um, I, but if, if I could get that person to really sit down and say, okay, I'm, I'm committing to this. I, uh, I didn't finish my degree. I, uh, it's the one thing that's on my bucket list that I'm probably going to do when I retire. I haven't had the need to, but I would say really finish your education, um, get your degree, but after you get your degree, become an artist at something. Um, if you're an artist, if you're a subject matter expert, then that's the value. And more importantly, if you're an artist and a subject matter expert in something you're passionate about, then your career will develop and your, you will flourish regardless of the financial impact of that, right? Um, I think we struggle to keep up with the Joneses in our society sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, that gets us in those, I'm just going to take this job because it's secure and I need to pay the bills. But if you can, if you can be the few that finds their happiness, finds something that you're great at and you're passionate about it and people want to pay you for that, then go be the subject matter expert and keep hustling, keep learning. Um, don't get comfortable. Keep stretching your skills. Keep honing it. Um, I learned five or six lessons every day in this business, and I thought I knew everything. But, you know, tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to need it then. Yeah. Great advice, not only for a younger you, but for young people today and, and even folks that are my age, too. Well put, Daniel. Well, listen, I've, I've kept you enough this evening. I really appreciate your time. This has been a lot of great information. Great to kind of hear about your journey. And, you know, it was not a traditional path, but it was certainly rewarding and fulfilling. And it, you got, you know, to get to where you are living your dream job. And um, it's, it's a great story for others to listen and model. You bet. Enjoyed it. And I appreciate it. I look forward to uh, hearing future podcasts as well. Thanks.